SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 18 with guest Don Valine. So our guest today is Don Valine. Uh, Don's a program manager in the SQL Server Engine Group, and so we say welcome, Don. Ah, thank you, Greg. So first of all, as usual, I might get you to describe how you came to be involved with SQL Server in the first place. Well, about uh, 11 and a half, 12 years ago, I uh, was a little bit too comfortable in my old job as being a <laughs> professor at a university in Northern California, and I thought it would be cool to work at Microsoft. And <laughs> I had taught uh, computer science courses for 15 years and uh, taught quite a few different things. And, and so one of the jobs that seemed interesting at Microsoft for me was uh, working with SQL Server, the database system. And they needed someone to come in and do some training for them, and it was called Worldwide Training at the time. It was a group of only three or four people, and it would train the support engineers. And so that was the, the position I accepted. Mm-hmm. So I... Uh, I trained the support engineers, the escalation engineers around the world for uh, a couple of years, and then a couple of guys from the SQL Server development team came over and asked me to join, and I was actually the the program manager, the tester, and the developer for SQL Server <laughs> setup at one point in early 7.0. After I did that for a year and a half, I moved to the UK. I was in Reading outside of London. And I was training support engineers again, but this time across EMEA and around the rest of the world. And then about five years ago, after being in, in England and for four years, I, uh, I moved back to the development team in Redmond. And so I've been working on the development of SQL Server 2005 since, since early 2000. For many years, yeah, yeah, that's great. Okay, so we've both been at TechEd in Australia this week. That's uh, kept us sort of very, very busy. I think uh, I must admit I've had a lot of sessions myself, and I think Don's uh, had uh, a similar number of sessions, a large number of sessions. So I must be being fairly tired at the end of the week. Um, but what I trouble you to do, were the thing I was looking to do in the show was go through. Uh, material that I saw at one of your other sessions at uh, I think at the past conference in Dallas or Munich or somewhere uh, where we were looking at transparent upgrade benefits. So it was describing there are a number of things in SQL Server 2005 that if you upgrade without doing anything else, there were a number of distinct advantages in making the upgrade to the product. So perhaps if we can start to talk through those. Okay, that would be great. First up, uh, first one on the list was full text search. Okay. So there were many different things with uh, with various features within SQL Server that that you could take advantage of without changing your application at all. So I called these transparent because they really only required a little bit of a change, if any change at all, on the server side. And uh, and I also refer to them sometimes as the uh, the immediate benefits, the ones that you get just by upgrading. 
And so with full text, one of the key things is that it's multi-instance and it's uh, it's got a separate service for SQL for each SQL Server instance that mm -hmm. you install. So that means that you can help isolate the different instances. You can take advantage of all the things that you get with multiple instances of the database engine as well. Um, and so Was this things like shared eye filters and so on? were an issue before, perhaps? Or? Well, there were different things, especially it, it often comes down to the installation of a service pack or something like that where uh, you might be thinking that you're still working on a SQL 7.0 uh, full-text index, but then someone has installed SQL Server 2000, and because there's only a single instance of it out there, then you were brought forward in time as mm -hmm. well. So there were also the different things that you might have within a, a full-text index, but... Uh, all those different things that help you by by separating mm. things together. Were the index, uh, the eye filters, for example, before were they shared with Index Server as well, or were they separate filters? I do not yeah, know. Don't know that. Yeah, don't know. Yeah. So I was just thinking the um, one of the things I had seen in some of the material, they were saying that uh, they could potentially have an issue where you had you were dependent upon one of the filters. That uh, the eye filters are the things that literally take the content and and send out a a stream of characters. So I noticed the, the the general approach with Index Server is they, they take different filters for different types of documents, uh, generate a stream of characters, and they had sort of language-specific word breakers that then broke them into words. And then after that, you had sort of uh, noise word removal because you had words like and and the and so on in right. English that uh, you don't want to index. And typically in Index Server, you also did things like... Uh, add to the noise word yourself because you might have say your own company name or things like that which would appear in every single document so you, you didn't really want to index that as well um, and then basically the, the things that were then left over ended up in an index so uh, one of the things I had heard is that it was kind of a shared eye filter thing with index server and so somebody could be making changes to that and then it would also have an effect uh, on, on the SQL server instance but I gather all those things are now instanced as well so right so that does make sense you know just because you needed it for one of your what we would think of as, as instances of SQL server doesn't mean that it needs to apply to every full text index that you have across all the different instances yeah so. And performance seems to be one of the main things they sort of claim some big benefits on. Yeah, I, I had some confirmation at, uh, at TechEd this week on, on that. There was someone that had some um, full-text catalogs. When they populated them, they would take four or five days, and then they upgraded to SQL Server 2000, and it took half an hour to an hour or so to do. Yeah. And so the, so the, the number I, I quote <laughs> is 100 times faster, and that's because <laughs> we actually have found a lot of the population to be to be that. That's, yeah, it's awesome. Uh, I, I love the – it's one of the things in, in uh, database optimizations and so on. I, I sit also a bit in the .NET world, and I see people trying to do optimizations, and, and you see numbers like 5% faster in 6, and uh, I always just love it in data based things, but particularly performance tuning, where you, where you see things that go from you know five minutes down to two seconds and things like that. There's just nothing that anybody's ever going to do in any other part of the optimization to ever change anything that, that even vaguely looks like that. So right. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where people will start submitting bugs because it's much too fast. You know, it's like, well, <laughs> we could slow it down for you if you really wanted us to, but no, it's really doing its job and it's just a lot faster. Mm. The other thing I really liked uh, was the 
idea that the full text catalogues are now in the database and are part of the backup and restore strategy as well? Yeah, absolutely, so, yeah. Mm. That was always one of the drawbacks. So although you can build your indexes a lot faster, maybe you don't need to rebuild your indexes because when you back up your database and you restore it, your full text indexes go with it. So mm. that just completely removes the need to do that repopulation that you had to do in the past. More how, and more how does that work with the attach and detach, though? If you were Same thing with attach hmm. and detach. So it understands that you've got your full text catalogs there and, and that when you detach them and then when you attach them, you know, it, it understands hmm. that, that they're there. Do you know if, do they have to be sort of completely in sync with the database? I actually had somebody asking me at the show, and I thought it was kind of an interesting thing, that they didn't have enough performance available to build the full text catalogs in the first place and they were wondering if there was any way to sort of build them on a replicated system or on some mirrored system or something else and then be able to attach it into the database i just didn't know if there was any way to do that yeah i don't know that there's mm. a supported way to do that <laughs> I, I i like the word supported in there. that's good <laughs> yeah that's always a, a very key thing uh, after playing with the, the insides of SQL Server, I know of a lot of ways to get some things done, but it's not <laughs> one of those things I'd ever publish because mm. people might do it and expect it to work in other ways. Yeah. And, and this is sort of one of those. I would think that it wouldn't necessarily have to be completely in sync. It would have to be in sync with the database itself. It might not be fully populated. You know, It's something mm. that it could then uh, pick up and carry on from where it had been before, but it it does get moved as a unit. So. Yeah. Actually, one of the sessions I did get to do this week uh, was one of Michael Reese's sessions. That was a, and full text search was one of the things covered in that. And what I found interesting is uh, the fact that they now had iFilters for XML as well, data type, because that's been added to the product. But uh, what he had is some really nice examples where he was using sort of promotable uh, properties effectively, but he was he had sort of user-defined functions that did X query to extract data out of XML columns and promote those up as uh, as computed columns and as persisted computed columns, and then he could actually index those using full-text indexing, and uh, it was just completely magic stuff. So if people get a chance to have a look at that uh, on the uh, TechEd US DVDs, I'm sure Michael Reese's session would be, uh, would be well worth a look. So that's good. That's great. Now, another one is query optimization. So this is queries that just run quicker. Yeah, um, there's a lot of things that we can do from a logical point of view, just looking at the queries that can help us make things faster, and uh, then there's a few others as well. So um, the first one is uh, non-updating updates of indexes. It seems like a pretty simple thing to do, but as you can imagine, if you tell me to update a million rows, maybe setting a certain column to a value and half of those columns are ready that value. Why should I go out for each of those rows, or those half million rows, and update the index? Mm. Um, the, the index is already correct. I do have to touch the rows in order to cause your triggers to fire and things like that, because that's what you would expect from a, mm. a behavior. But if you set a column that is already one, equal to a one, and I know it at that time, I shouldn't go out and update the index. And so we skip that step, and so that means that our non-updating indexes or non-updating updates yeah. uh, really can avoid that. I can imagine. Actually, that could be quite key, too, because I see a lot of uh, object relational mappers and things like that where they tend to 
read in the state of an object and then modify some particular property of the object and then they persist the entire object back right. and often there are all of the columns being updated even though they're not being updated and yeah sure if there were indexes tied off those that that could have a substantial impact absolutely so, hmm. yeah, another one is that uh, we actually will match indexes and indexed views in more cases than we would before so we've gotten a bit smarter with that um, there are several cases where you have a query. The query doesn't mention an indexed view at all, but we determine that the answer could come from a view that's already pre-computed and stored in an indexed view. And so we'll do that in even more cases than we would before. One of the things with indexed views was that uh, my recollection was that it was only the enterprise edition that automatically chose plans based on indexed views. Is yes, that still right. the case? Yes, yeah. that's still the case. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, there were some ways to get the standard edition to actually use an index view, but you had to explicitly mention that. So it an optimizer work. hint or something like right. that, we mention the index, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. One other thing that we've done as far as query optimization is that uh, we call it uh, predicate implication across equijoins. So this says that if we know that you're doing a join on equality, um, for example, uh, my example is that you've got some column X and you're joining on X in two tables, R and S, but you're also saying that that this column X in the, in the table S is greater than some value. Then we also know that it has to be greater than that value in the other table. So we can maybe make use of the index in the other table, even though you've never said that the other table value is greater than 10 or something like that. Where I presume the optimizer before would have dealt with that if it was an equality, so it's it's just now a range or being well, able to imply it's, it's something. It's an equality across a join now. So mm. if you had said that a certain column is equal to another certain column, perhaps we could have taken advantage of it. But now it's a couple of columns in a couple of different tables. Yeah. So another area is just some of the optimizations we can do just by looking at the the query itself. We call them symbolic query optimizations or simplifications. And that's just saying things that perhaps because I'm doing a select and I'm joining to a view or something, I may get a lot of different predicates that, that either seem to conflict or, or further reduce what one predicate might have done. So I might end up having where clauses for many different places that in a single query come down to saying that some column A is greater than 3 and column A is greater than 5. Well, in the past, we would keep both of those predicates, but we know that if something's greater than 3 and greater than 5, <laughs> it has to be greater than 5, so mm -hmm. we can throw away the greater than 3 part. And so it just simplifies it. It says that when we start looking at an index, we just go from 5 onward rather than starting at 3 and throw away mm -hmm. everything between 3, 4, and up to 5. Yeah, I think people often sort of look at that and go, why would anybody ever write a query where A is greater than 3 and A is greater than 5? But the thing I see is invariably those things are generated code or they're generated by query tools or things like that that end up putting in overlapping predicates and things and uh, and no doubt you would have processed them before. So Right. And that happens if you might have two or three views that you're selecting from. You don't know what the where clause in the views themselves are. We bring them all together and then we try to get rid of the extraneous stuff. Mm. There's another case where we do the same or a similar thing for betweens and uh, other other comparisons. If we have a column that or a where clause that says A is between 1 and 100 and another one that says A is between 100 and 200, then we can reduce that down to A is equal to 100. We know that 
that's the only part that would ever be able to solve that uh, that pair of equations or expressions. Hmm. Interesting. Then statement level recompilation is another one, I gather, in terms of performance. So all of these are things that you just get for free. You don't have to change your application at all. And um, statement level recompile is one of the, it should take a, should help a whole lot with uh, many different queries. Um, you might have a stored procedure, might be 30,000 lines long, and somewhere near the top you might refer to a stored, or sorry, to a temporary table that you're creating. A little bit later you might refer to it. Well, every time that you refer to that temporary table, we actually have to recompile in 2000. We had to recompile from that point onward. And if it was 30,000 lines long, it can take a while. And then when we hit it again, we'd have to do a recompile from that point onward. And so that meant that um, you had something that forced a recompile. It would be nice if it only recompiled the parts that needed it. And so now in SQL Server 2005, we're much more sophisticated, and we'll only recompile that statement that needs to be changed, not all of the stuff from that point onward. And so it's a it's a pretty cool thing, and people will be less affected by um, by recompiles in the future because it's only doing it at the statement rather than re recompiling over and over again. Yeah, I found that previously people would tend to take a lot of larger stored procs and break them into pieces or something like that to avoid the recompile overhead you know, where that would actually need to occur. So again, this seems to get around that quite nicely. I notice when I look in Profiler and you, get, you look at the recompile event, there seem to often be more recompiles occurring, but they're obviously much, much shorter duration. Absolutely. And of course, another solution to the, sta- or to the recompile problem was the use of table variables. Hmm. Um, just the logic that underlies that meant that we didn't have to recompile when you were using statement, or sorry, um, table variables, whereas temporary tables would require a recompile. Yeah, I noticed actually there's a really good white paper that is it Aaron Marath or something had originally, and then I think it was updated later that uh, talked about recompilation strategies and things like that. And I, I do recall that uh, it's a white paper up on the MSTN site. The uh, thing I recall with that, I think temp tables, it had um, a row counter for modifications. It was quite tiny. The threshold was like six six rows or something like that, at which point it would then often cause recompiles where with table value variables it said, yeah, there wasn't a recompilation threshold at all for those. So, yeah, no, that's kind uh, of interesting. I believe, though, too, that a lot of the times when you're creating a temporary table, we know that, of course, it can't be the same temporary table that someone else is using, and so we can't use the plan that we had created for those other people mm-hmm. as well. And so the object ID has changed, and so we have to change it from here on down throughout the program. And, mm-hmm. and so that is... Uh, the key reason for temp table recompiles. And next one you had on the list was force parameterization. Yeah, so there's something called auto-parameterization, which is a nice big mouthful to say (laughs) over and over again. But SQL Server has been using auto-parameterization in order to obtain reuse of plans for quite a little while. If you have two queries that are identical, you select or an update or something, except for the constant. So somewhere in there you were setting a certain column to a three or you set it where it was equal to a three, and then you um, issue exactly the same statement, but instead of a three you have a 17 in it now. Um, we can't reuse the plan because the plans are not character for character identical. 
Yeah, actually, that seems to be something that isn't clearly understood either, is that even though the, the server is set up case insensitive and all those sorts of things, it seems to be a very strict uh, text comparison that it's doing of the plans and white space and uh, different characters and things, uh, casing and so on, completely make it e end up being a different plan. Right. But uh, the, the thing that I found quite useful with that is the new show plan XML, and I found uh, you can certainly easily see the auto-parameterization occurring. Uh, when I look at a show plan XML and then I look at a statement that has been parameterized, then immediately towards the bottom of the XML plan it actually breaks out uh, the details of the parameters that it's found in amongst that. And it, it certainly seems very efficient in the way it does it. So. Right. So we go through and we replace the constants with a, with a, a variable. We just create a, a variable for you, put it in there for you, so that the next time that we encounter a query like this, if we auto-parameterize it, it will have the same, the same characters, the same statement. We can reuse the plan. What we're doing in SQL Server 2005 now is you can actually force it to do this in cases that it wouldn't have done it before. So in other words, we try to walk that fine line between spending a lot of time auto-parameterizing in order to reuse a plan or let's do it a little bit lighter and maybe miss some of the cases where we could have done, where we could have reused a plan, but hopefully save some time on compilation because we might just go through and comp uh, do this auto-parameterization only to find out that there wasn't a plan for it anyway. Mm -hmm. And so now if you turn forced auto-parameterization on at the database level, we'll pretty much do everything we can in order to parameterize things. Mm -hmm. And so this had to be a database option rather than have it go on by default because it might change the behavior of your system. We might spend yeah. a little more time compiling, but if you want us to, we'll do it. Mm -hmm. And changes to how statistics are handled? Yeah, we've had several different changes uh, with statistics. One of the first ones is that uh, the statistics can be updated asynchronously. As you may be aware, you're running a query. The query has a, a plan out in cache, um, but you've updated quite a few different rows within the table, and it might have just hit the trigger that said, okay, I shouldn't use these statistics because I've made so many updates, they might not be correct anymore. Maybe my plan is now incorrect. But that means that on this one update that you're doing, now all of a sudden you have to wait until the statistics get repopulated or recalculated. Um, what might be better is to have the statistics that were there continue to be used and a flag set to say, you know, go out and update these statistics, but don't make me wait for them. And so that's what we do. We will use the existing plan, we'll use the existing uh, statistics, and um, and then while we're doing our operation, perhaps the statistics will get updated. So the next mm -hmm. time that comes along, we'll have updated statistics. Mm -hmm. So this is great. You can improve your predictability. A query that was running pretty fast for you doesn't all of a sudden have to stop while statistics get gathered. Mm -hmm. And our statistics are more accurate as well. We've changed the underlying structures of some of our, our statistics. Uh, we even keep statistics on, on strings now. So if you're doing something with a, a wildcard at the beginning of a string, we've been able to use statistics for wildcards at the end of a string, but now we can actually have statistics that help us understand distribution of, of strings. Mm. Um, let's see. We can also uh, create statistics on computed columns. So if you have a query that uses a computed column in a where clause, it might be nice for us to know the distribution of values in the computed column, even though the computed column values don't get stored. 
So th this is even on not even that we now have persisted computed columns as right. well. But so this is on non-persisted computed columns. Right. So we may want to. So it's a column. A column can have statistics on it. It just happens to be a computed column that doesn't have any real. Uh, data stored underneath it. It could be with uh, persisted. We could actually store those values if calculating them takes a while. Um, but now we've got these statistics that uh, that give us better ideas as to what indexes maybe we should use for computed columns and come up with better plans because that's what statistics are for. Mm. So another thing that we do is parallel statistics gathering with using a full scan. Uh, if you tell us to go out there and gather statistics and do a full scan while we're doing that, uh, what we can do now is we can actually use multiple threads and uh, scan different parts of the table with different threads. And so we can calculate your st statistics a bit faster. So this is only on the full scan when you're repopulating your or recalculating your statistics. Correct. And lastly, some changes to SP Update Stats. Yeah, SP Update Stats was another one of those, well, why didn't you do this before sort of things. <laughs> um, SP Update Stats goes out and does an update statistics uh, statement for every table in the database. Um, some of your tables maybe haven't been updated. And so that means that if we go out and we update the statistics on those tables, it would be a waste of time. And so now... Um, now with update stats, what we will do is um, check to see if there's been any changes to the table. And if there's been changes to the table, we'll update your stats. If there haven't been any changes to your table, your statistics are good and the same as they were before. And so some people have actually found that this is a whole lot faster. Well, if you've got a lot of read-only tables that haven't changed since the last time you did it, we'll skip those tables, and yes, it'll be a whole lot faster mm -hmm. because it's it's smarter and it avoids work that it didn't have to do to start with. I noticed actually with the indexes too, um, one of the things that seems very, very useful is the uh, some of the new distributed management views with the uh, index usage stats, sys.dm uh, index usage stats. One of the things I'm sort of wondering, um, do, do any of the things that make these decisions m use that same data, or, or is it some other data that they... Well, we've got a, a couple of categories of index DMVs, and um, one of them is the index usage, and the other one is the missing indexes. Hmm. In some cases, what we're doing is we're really gathering that information to be able to report it to you, and then you can make uh, appropriate um, decisions based on that. One of them is, you know, you execute a query, but the optimizer couldn't find the perfect index that it would have used. It records that in missing indexes. And uh, and then perhaps you go back and you decide that you need that index. But, of course, it's, it's doing that completely in isolation, and it's doing it without regard for the amount of updating that you might have to do in order to mm -hmm. maintain those indexes. With uh, usage stats... You may be wondering if there's certain statistics, or sorry, certain indexes that aren't being used at all, and you could go out and look at the index usage and find out that you know these indexes aren't even being used. Maybe it's time to get rid of them. We could. I don't believe we do this yet, but we could put that together with um, the database tuning advisor. If you tell it that it's okay for it to recommend the removal of certain indexes, and then if it can go out and look at the index usage stats could determine that it, they hadn't been used anyway. Correct. But given the fact that most of the DMV values do get reset each time you restart your server, it may be that they were used, but they were used previously. So mm. maybe at some point those will evolve to being recorded, 
And, uh, of course, you can always select everything out of the index. Usage, Periodically put and a, put them into a table, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And so then you can make some decisions yourself. So some of mm-hmm. this is framework for, for future work, and yeah. anybody that looks at it or understands it can probably figure out a direction that this could go, <laughs> yes, uh, whether it's the direction that's or good. Not, I don't know. Well, listen, that's probably a good point to take a short break, and we'll come back. We'll continue talking on this topic. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular... The first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break, and what I might get you to do first on is just share a little bit about yourself and where you live or family or sports or hobbies or anything you're willing to share. <laughs> well, I, I live up in the Seattle area in a place called Kirkland along Lake Washington. I've got this... I was quite lucky to get a, a pretty good spot out over the water uh, with a good view of the Seattle skyline. So it seems to be a lot of water around Seattle. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it's falling out of the sky almost all the time, all year long. Um, I enjoy going for a run. Uh, even this morning here in Sydney, I went for about a 10K run and did all the stuff around the Opera House and across the Harbor Bridge and uh, around Outstanding. and around. And then come over and do a couple of tech ed talks and a <laughs> podcast and a few other things. <laughs> I, uh, I very much enjoy the traveling that I get to do, uh, mostly because of, of these opportunities to speak at different locations. So mm-hmm. I've been to maybe 50 different countries around the world the past few years, and I enjoy doing that. So. That's great. In fact, you were mentioning earlier in the week uh, what, what the busiest week you had. Was uh, was it nine sessions at uh, yeah. TechEd Australia and the same in New Zealand or something right, like that in, in a week? 2000, yeah, <laughs> for TechEd 2000, I did nine talks in Australia. And then we had a day to travel to Auckland, and I did all nine of them again there. So I did 18. <laughs> I, there's one of the guys, one of our architects, he says, oh, I heard about this guy who did, he did 10% of, the, of a TechEd once. And I said, well, I, I didn't know it, but I went back and calculated I did 10.5% of two tech-eds in one week, so it was, <laughs> no, pretty, no. it was pretty good. Yeah, actually, I had 12 sessions this week, and they were telling me I had my own track. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, and, uh, that's great. So in addition with uh, other things, so query execution changes with dynamic objects, I note. Yeah, so in the past when we were taking a look and calculating a plan and then putting the plan into cache, some of the... Some of the plans were marked for immediate um, recompile, or they would not be held, and that applied to to the various uh, dynamic objects, uh, especially things like triggers. So you can imagine a trigger is something that needs to be uh, compiled and then executed, and we'd always mark it just for immediate removal, um, or at least for not reuse. And so now, for dynamic um, dynamic objects, triggers, uh, we actually will. Uh, retain that so that hopefully we'll be able to use it again the next time. And distributed queries now executed asynchronously? Yeah, so when you're working with a distributed query using linked servers, it used to be that if you 
mentioned two link servers in the same query, likelihood was that it would go off to one one link server, pull back the data that it needed from there, and then go to the second one. Now what it'll do is it'll start them up on uh, on both sides and um, pull back the data asynchronously rather than Excellent. just sitting yeah. there and waiting for it. And also it's noting a number of things additional uh, exposed th through SQL Server Profiler that weren't before. Yeah, so SQL Server Profiler has some, some new great capabilities. Um, one of them is the ability to profile events out of analysis services, which is great. It also works together with a distributed query, which is uh, tied together with what we were just talking about. Um, but then there's also deadlock uh, notification and deadlock graphs that mm -hmm. it can actually do. I just showed one in the, the, uh, the session that I just got done with it. So it's really cool. It gives <laughs> Actually, you the session I did this morning uh, was uh, Bob Boachman's session originally uh, on error handling. And that, yeah, again, I showed a deadlock graph in there as well. The One of the things I hadn't realized, I, I'd looked at lo lots and lots of the deadlock graphs, but I hadn't actually hovered over the objects in the graph before. And I didn't realize it actually showed the batch of statements right. in each of the things that's involved. That's actually very powerful. Well, the interesting thing is that you can save these deadlock graphs off as XDL files. And so it's an event out there in, uh, in Profiler. And when you click deadlock graph as an event to capture, you'll notice that there's another tab that shows up. And, uh, and for XML show plans and for these XML representations of your, of your deadlock, you can actually have each one of them sent off into a file, either a separate file or into um, an, a file that combines them all. And then you can open those files, and when you open those files, they'll show the graph again. They'll open mm -hmm. up in Management Studio, and then you can see it. And you can still hover over it. So <laughs> it's in the past, you, when you worked with ShowPlan, you often would have to do a screen, screen capture, capture or or yeah. you'd have to see it in text and then try to do it. But now mm -hmm. now you can uh, capture it in XML. The XML can be rendered as, a, as the graph, either for, for the deadlock or the show plan, and you can still hover over the different aspects and, mm -hmm. and, and see what's there. So yeah. it's really cool. Note also rebuild, uh, offline rebuilds of indexes have improved. Yeah, so this talk that we're going through here was transparent benefits. So these were things that really meant that you didn't have to make any changes whatsoever. So this is always a, an intro to, well, we have this new online index <laughs> online rebuild. Online index rebuild. Actually, I did some uh, customer one-on-ones this week, and uh, I, I have to say, the for the uh, very large database guys, the online index rebuilds are just a godsend. Uh, they're that is the number one thing they all keep talking about. Right. So having it online means you can get to the data even while you're doing the rebuild. Of course, table and index partitioning means that you only have to rebuild the part of the index that maybe has been updated recently, so you have less of an impact even there. Then even if you don't do the online or you don't do partitioning, you'll find that your index rebuilds will be a bit faster as well. Correct. Locking changes? Well... Within the locking, we've got uh, the fact that um, lock memory is more NUMA aware. So with a, a NUMA processor, you've got uh, some local memory. So in general, NUMA, uh, for, for the anybody listening going, oh, my God, what's NUMA aware? Um, uh, so NUMA means non-uniform memory access. It means that a processor has some memory that's tied close to the processor. And if you want to go to that, it's really quick. But if you need to go to some memory that's on another processor or elsewhere, it's going to take a little longer and uh, maybe 10 times longer or even mm -hmm. more. 
And so if possible, you'd like to be able to get to the local memory rather than somewhere else. Mm. And so in many cases with locks, we will actually create locks close to the processor um, that is referring to it and uh, rather than storing it just in some memory that's further away. And so it's just more aware of the, the, the NUMA architecture and, um, and then uh, works with its lock memory mm. in, in that way. We've also done something called lock partitioning, which actually allows us to take a lock and separate it, um, actually create multiple locks, but uh, gain from that same NUMA-type processing. So this is something that if you've got 16 or more CPUs, it's on by default. We actually partition the locks. It looks like we're taking more locks, but it's one of those things where you gain because... Uh, you've got those locks locally and, and so forth rather than having to reach out to some remote uh, some remote memory. Mm. Um, it's one of those things that's rather esoteric. It's something that, you know, only if you have 16 processors <laughs> yeah, or more. That's so right. That's, that's a, not everybody. Yeah, right. 16 processors or more. Yeah. So that's about the detail I'd go into it at this point. But mm. there's a lot in Books Online that uh, just is right under the lock partitioning section in, yeah. uh, in Books Online. Now, DBCC, a bit of an overhaul, number of changes. Right. One of the key ones is that we use database snapshots, which is a new feature, a new way of creating a copy of a database at a certain point in time. Uh, DBCC check star, the different check operations, will use a database snapshot to, to get a, a consistent point-in-time version of a database. In the past, when you did a DBCC, it would scan your database, and then it would have to look at the log to see what changes happened while it was scanning your database and figure out if any of the facts that it had gathered and the errors that it thought it had were really not errors because um, you'd, you'd done some operation as, as it was scanning a database. And so now it sees the database all at one time, or as of one time, with these database snapshots. And it just builds them underneath the covers, um, and it does it on an alternate stream of each of the files within mm -hmm. that database. So it's just one of those things that magically works underneath the mm -hmm. covers and avoids a lot of the problems that you might have had with... Uh, do you, do you see the snapshot file actually appear in the file system? Is it like a normal snapshot? Um, so it's an alternate stream, and I'm not sure if... Oh, using like NTFS alternate streams. Okay, Absolutely. yeah. So. Mm. so on a regular database snapshot, you specify where those files should be, and mm. then they use sparse files. So you can see them, but on these, they're alternate streams. Yeah, and I'm not I'd, sure say, I'd say not. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, It looks like a dollar file if you really know what you're doing, yeah. but I don't <laughs> know that you can find them. Um, let's see, also under DBCCs, so when you're doing a shrink or a defrag, um, your large objects actually get shrunk and they get defrag. They get moved around now. So in SQL 2000, you might have noticed that you thought you were shrinking things, but some of those pages just didn't ever <laughs> move, and that was because they were large objects. Mm -hmm. The large objects have a, a tree-like structure that have pointers to other or other parts of them. And, um, and if you ever moved a part of it, you'd have to go back and change all the pointers that pointed to it, and that's a pretty, pretty convoluted, pretty uh, complex process. Mm -hmm. Well, we've made sure that we've done it and we've tested it and it works and it's perfectly fine. So now we work or we have that capability in SQL Server 2005 where we didn't have it before. So you'll see that there's less reserved space for lobs or large objects than, than you had before because mm -hmm. we actually know how to compress it now. Also, a number of the operations in DBCC now uh, have progress reporting. So check operations and shrink operations. Right. So you can go on out to... Um, 
the the DMV on exec requests, and it'll actually tell you how far along it is and mm-hmm. and how much further it maybe has to go. Correct. Yeah, yes. I mean, some of those processes could take quite a while. <laughs> yeah, if you <laughs> have huge databases, databases yeah. of course, you don't have to check the entire database. You can check file groups or whatever, mm-hmm. but some people get a, a database check going, and then they're wondering just how long it's going to take. And, of course, you always kill it just before it finishes. <laughs> and, uh, so now you know. Some storage engine changes very close to home. For right. <laughs> yeah. I, for some reason in my talk, I always give a lot of detail about the storage, <laughs> storage engine part. Yes. These are some of the, the ones that we have some good detail. So one of the first ones is that your rows can now be larger than an 8K page. In the past, uh, the largest uh, row could be was 8,060 bytes because it had to fit on a single page, and that's not counting any large objects, uh, text, image, and text. Um, so now uh, what we will do is we'll take part of your variable columns and actually uh, spill them over into another page. And so that means that you can create a col- or sorry, create a table that has 10 columns, and each of them could be a varcar 8,000, and you could even fill them all up. In the past, you could create them, but you couldn't fill them up. So yes, and you got the warning telling you, you that you were creating a table that you yeah. might not be able to populate. So yeah. once you did an insert or an update, you got an error rather than, mm. and now you just don't get those errors. That's cool. So we've also improved uh, some TempDB scalability. One of the things that we have is uh, a new snapshot isolation, and it makes a lot of use of, of TempDB. And then there's other aspects of SQL Server that make more use of TempDB as well. And so we wanted to make sure that it was more scalable, um, that it could handle this heavier load. And as you're aware, there are certain, um, certain attributes of TempDB that make it so that we can treat it a little bit special. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things is every time that you start up a, a SQL Server date, or sorry, a SQL Server instance, the TempDB gets recreated from the model database, mm-hmm. and so that means whatever was in it can be thrown away, which means yeah. you never have to restore the TempDB. So that means maybe you don't need all of the stuff that the TempDB had for restoring. Mm-hmm. So in the past, I don't know if you go back to, I know you do, Greg, but back <laughs> prior to SQL Server 7.0 when we had syslogs and it was actually a table and it had to look exactly like every other table just to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, we changed it. At, or Sorry, that was syslogs. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about TempDB, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, but there are some things with, uh, with TempDB that, that we don't have to do, yeah. and so we've, we've optimized it. Do you think um, in terms of putting things into production, people need to be more aware of TempDB with this version? I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of row version stores and all these things. Uh, uh, when we went to the past conference in Dallas and we had the MVP summit after it, we spent a day with one of the engine team guys. I wish I could remember which one who uh, then did a session with us for an hour or so on changes surrounding TempDB. And um, I must admit I was very impressed with the amount of work that had gone into that area. But I was left sort of feeling that there are an awful lot of things now more dependent on it. And so uh, in terms of uh, I.O. performance or things like that, it may become more critical than it, it was before. Yeah, there there are more things that actually work with TempDB, and so if you do th- some of the things like the row versions using snapshot isolation. And um, triggers, I think uh, was another, yeah. Well, triggers, um, yes, so every time that you work with a trigger, trigger is actually using a row version as well, yeah. uh, even if you don't have snapshot, snapshot isolation turned on. Um, 
the nice thing about triggers doing that means that it does use tempdb, but hopefully some of the information never actually makes it out to the tempdb disk. You know, mm. it's just used up in cache, and so that that can remove a lot of the concerns. You know, if we can yeah. get it up in cache and use it there and never have to we write have it lots of memory. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and it also saves us from having to go out and read from the log because that, of course, is where the inserted and deleted tables mm. used to be, and so you are maybe accepting a, a smaller charge rather than the bigger charge that yeah. you used to have before. So you've got increased scalability and, mm -hmm. and everything else. So so it should always be faster, um, and but it's using a different methodology. Yeah. And so with TempDB, yes, it's it's always good. We, we do recommend that um, TempDB have as many files or approximately as many files as you have CPUs uh, just to help avoid some of the allocation um, conflicts that you might have. Um, we do a lot better as far as doing allocations um, and avoiding the the locks and the conflicts that there would there would be. But if we could allocate some space on the, each of the different files at the same time, then that would avoid even more of the mm. conflicts that and that some people might. Occur. Rather than doing it via auto grow, so, right? Yeah. Well, auto grow is always a good thing to have turned on. Just in case. Just in case, so <laughs> yeah. that you, while you're here talking with me and something happens back at the shop and your mm -hmm. database needs some autogrow, well, it can take care of itself. But autogrow on almost any database, in, as well as TempDB, you know, it's probably better managed than than sort of ad hoc let it happen when autogrow feels like doing mm -hmm. it. And if you uh, grow all of your files at the same time, that would mean that we can do our proportional fill, our round robin allocation, like we've always done. Whereas if uh, you rely on auto grow, then that means one of the files out of that uh, file group or that database is going to grow, and everything's going to go into that one mm -hmm. rather than get spread across the different files. So, so it's always good to have multiple files for a, a database, yeah. especially for sufficient loads and stuff. Number of changes in uh, the sort of backup and restore area as well, particularly at the high end with log shipping. Right. One of the great things, well. First off, we can also just mention that log shipping is also log shipping is also in uh, the standard edition. So that's mm. that's that's an interesting aspect to it. Actually, there are a number of things in standard edition in this version that uh, required enterprise edition in previous one. I'm sort of really pleased to see them. So yeah. right, we've got log shipping, we've got our database mirroring, which is new, of mm. course, but it's available in both. Um, yeah, with with special capabilities in Enterprise Edition, of course. Mm. And then failover clustering is even available in, yeah. uh, in Standard Edition now, but it needs the operating system underlying it to be able to <laughs> Regardless, it. yeah. So we've got that. But yeah, under, under backups, uh, you can back up the data and the log at the same time, which is great for log shipping because you perhaps with log shipping, you are backing up the log every two minutes, every five minutes or something. And if someone was doing a data backup, either a backup of the database or a file or a file group, at the same time, then your attempt to back up the log would actually fail. And so if you were using that for disaster recovery, if you were doing it every two minutes, well, you lost one of your two-minute cycles in there. Mm -hmm. You'd have to come back two minutes later and try it again which, as long as your system was up and available two minutes later, okay, so you've got four minutes that you're backing up now. But uh, now you can back up the log and the data at the same time, uh, and so that's great. If you've got log shipping happening and you're backing up the log, you can still back up the data. If you're backing up the data and the log backup comes along, you can you can do that. Still do so. Yeah. And restores, more powerful? Well, 
we can restore just single pages now, so that's mm-hmm. uh, a great thing. You can res- restore and even uh, verify uh, checksums that you took during backups, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, all of those require a little bit of a change on your part, so in this talk that I'd often give, it was mm-hmm. transparent benefits, and one of those was uh, restore, verify only. Restore, verify only is sort of one of those things that we improve every single release. It's sort of like the way our deadlock detection or something, we either changes mm-hmm. or we improve it. And this time, uh, Restore, Verify only does virtually everything except writing those restored pages onto the disk and over the top mm-hmm. of your database. It'll go through and, and read every page, do all the checksums, uh, if you have checksums turned on, and, and, uh, and check the formats of the pages and things like that. So mm-hmm. it does virtually everything except the actual final steps <laughs> right to Restore. Disk, yeah. Actually, the, the thing, I have a... Uh, a colleague that uh, used to describe it's an area that you had to get right and uh, used to describe it as a, a CLM if you got it wrong it was a career limiting move right. uh, that was the <laughs> the acronym for that and uh, I must admit the the years I spent at HP uh, I saw so many hardware issues uh, that could also cause you pain grief and agony in that area that uh, I, I've, I've come to be very very wary over the years. Uh, uh, I vividly remember one tape drive, for example, and people would say to me, oh, look, it does read after write. And uh, I saw one that had the erase head stuck on, and it was quite intriguing because it would literally erase the data, it would write the new data, it would read it back, check it was fine, and then as it rewound, it would erase the entire tape. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> things like that. The, um, there, there really is nothing short of, of rebuilding systems occasionally from backups to just to have any concept that you really have what you're meant to have on the tape. And, uh, Absolutely, and you need to rebuild it at times when it's not important. I mean, yep. it's, it's not when you have your CIO or your Correct. vice president or whatever looking over your shoulder and saying, this is costing me a million dollars a minute or something yeah. like that. And so. but, but even with uh, the, the, the new options there with the verify only, I mean, it does mean that at least this drive can restore it back and almost get to the same thing. But, but I've often seen also situations where the only tape drive on the planet that will read the tape is the one that just got burnt down or stolen or something. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. So the, the whole thing with backups and restores, I just love to periodically see uh, systems rebuilt on other systems somewhere else so that you, you know you have some chance of doing that absolutely. if things go wrong. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the verify only is something that has changed each each release as well. Way back in 4.2 and 6.0, it pretty much said, that, yeah, I can see the file. It must be good. You know, it didn't even <laughs> yeah. bother to read it and everything. So, so we've changed it as we go on through, and now it's it's much much. Yeah, I used to see ones that they would literally load a tape, and they were just if it had the right number of tape markers, almost. You know, it could read the tape and say the tape's fine. You go, yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, maybe. Just, and just tape markers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Bits aren't important. <laughs> so the file I.O. changes in that area? Yeah, well, one of the big changes there is that we realize that uh, that there are some disk systems out there that can lose a bit every once in a while. And <laughs> since they're getting larger and larger and larger, the it's possibilities are even higher. And so people sometimes will blame the SQL Server, or at least they'll try to point their finger our way. And... Uh, and we just haven't had any corruptions or problems within SQL Server to, to be the ones to take the blame on this anymore. And so one of the things that we've done is actually put checksums on each page. And so if you turn on the, the page checksum as a page verify option, 
then uh, every time that we write a page, a data page, out to the disk, we're going to put a checksum on it. We go through and pretty much add all the bytes together and and then store that value in the page and write mm -hmm. it out there. Then Is the there much time, of an overhead with that? Well, it shouldn't be much of an overhead. You realize that it's only when the data page gets written. And so if we have something in cache and it gets used over and over again, you know, we're going mm -hmm. to make maybe, maybe I'm just thinking 10 every time you read changes. It. And then every time yeah. you read it, we have to go through and, and see if it's if it's still correct. And yeah. if it is not correct, then we know there was a problem that either the OS or the oper or the, sorry the the disk system didn't report to us. Mm. There's been different tests on it. Uh, some some tests are two or three or four percent of an impact, but it definitely depends on the behavior of your system mm. as far as. Um, how often a page gets updated and then written. If you touch every single page and there's not enough room in cache for it to retain, um, then then maybe you're going to see mm -hmm. something there. But so this gives you a good idea that, that you aren't actually losing some information on out yeah. there on that disk. Files get initialized instantly now, too, as an yeah. option. And that's a, another one of those things where people are going to tell us it's way too fast. There must be a bug. <laughs> uh, with Windows 2003 and the right permission on uh, the service account, when we ask Windows for some space, if, if it's got the SE Manage Volume name permission, then uh, it can give us the space and we can use that space without having to go out and write a bunch of zeros before we start working with it. Mm. So one of the things that has happened with Autogrow or create a database or even restore a database which causes the same storage allocation, uh, we'd have to go out and write it all out, write zeros all out before we'd put the, the mm. real data on top of it. And of course in an auto-grow operation that could have been quite scary. And, and it's at exactly <laughs> the wrong time. You don't want to spend the time when you're doing auto-grow to uh, go out and write 10 gigs because you've got some file that suddenly had to have and 10 gigs. It said add 10% to the size of the uh, yeah. the 100 gig file that had auto-grow on 10%. Right. Yeah. And so now what we can do is we can get that data space and start using it right away. Of course, we do zero it out as we allocate the pages, but uh, but we don't have to write to all of it before we start working with it. So you see, that's a, a question I do have. Is the I've always, often wondered why the default value is 10% for auto grow rather than a certain size that wouldn't cause a problem as it got larger and larger. I think it was the right decision at the time. <laughs> okay. and people didn't really realize that, okay, I'm going to have this 100-gig file, and 10% of that is quite a large is a lot of It's a large amount and of data. It's an okay thing for a default, but then uh, it maybe people select the default when they should have thought about, thought it about just the a option. little bit more. Yeah, and, of course, one thing that happens is you start with small databases, and somehow your company mm -hmm. magically grows, and, and you're now saving... <laughs> everything in the entire world inside your database. Some optimizations on inserts? Um, yeah, so there's there's some write operations that actually work with a, a range of rows. So usually you don't think about an insert having more than one row that gets inserted mm. at a time, but if you do an insert, insert select, select or something like yeah, that, so yeah, insert, insert exec, yeah. right. so now you can have a batch of or multiple rows that get inserted at a single time. There's certain optimizations that we have for bulk inserts to do this thing, BCP, uh, and so we can use the same sort of optimizations for these um, these multi-insert statements. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, and one of the last ones is database recovery changes. Right, so um, we now have something called a, a fast recovery. So in the Enterprise Edition, we can go through and um, and actually allow the users to be in the database while we're doing the undo phase of recovery. So every time we start up the database, we go through the redo phase and the undo phase in order to make sure everything that's in the log is also on the data pages. Um, and in SQL Server 2000 and in the standard edition, we have to wait until both the uh, redo and undo phases are complete. But in the enterprise edition, we can uh, we can let you in the database before then. Mm. So it, it means that in a is it limited to a table though? Is it, like, does it know which tables are affected no. by the undo? Or? So during the redo, we actually take locks on the different rows that we're redoing. Ah, okay. And so as a commit comes along, well, those get committed and the rows, mm. those locks get released. But anything that hasn't been committed or rolled back from the log is still there, and it must be stuff we need to roll back. We still mm. have locks on those, and so yep. we just go through and do Good. that. Changes to the checkpoint process itself? Yeah, well, checkpoint has been around for a long time. What it does is periodically it uh, takes all the dirty pages in data cache and writes them out to disk so that hopefully we won't have to spend too much time recovering. It gives us a good baseline for when we start up a database, we know where everything was in mm. sync before. And that's the last checkpoint record. Um, so the checkpoint process comes along periodically after a certain, typically a, after a certain amount of log records have been written, and then it says, oh, I need to write these data pages out. Is it time-based currently, or is it based on number of It's more based records. on, so what you do is you say that you want the recovery not to take more than this amount yeah. of time, and what we've done is we've, we've tied that really to a certain amount of log records. So this many log records is probably going to take this amount of time in order to recover. And so what we'll do is we'll look to see, well, how much is in the log since we last did a checkpoint, time to do a checkpoint, and so it'll take only about this much time. Mm. Now, it's not a, a, a perfect measure as to how much time it'll take, but it mm. was a good ballpark, and it's, it mm. was measured on a certain machine at a certain time uh, a few years ago. Mm. But anyway, checkpoint... It used to be that Checkpoint didn't really have to worry about uh, overloading the I.O. system because we only had 32-bit addresses and everything. Mm. And so there was a limit to the amount of data cache that you had. And even if it did sort of cause a couple of your queries to pause, it wouldn't take too long. But now with 64-bit and 64-bit address spaces, now all of a sudden you can have like 64 gigs and... If I'm trying to write 64 gigs to the disk, it, you might notice it. <laughs> and, and, uh, so it might have a real impact on what you're, you're processing. And so Checkpoint's a lot smarter now. It, it realizes that it can't just slam all the data out to disk. It has to be a little better citizen within SQL Server. And so it monitors the I.O. load that it's placing on the system, sort of backs itself off, and tries not to have as much of an impact as it, as it could, of course. Of course, now Checkpoint also is something that it could write a subset of the pages out to disk, and it, once it writes them, of course, they're not dirty anymore. They're, they're actually clean. What's on disk is the same thing that's in the cache. And so if you needed to stop Checkpoint and start it back up again, you could do something like that, and mm -hmm. uh, it would just continue with the dirty pages. And the ones that it wrote before don't have to be written now. So checkpoint also is a, a statement. You can actually execute the mm. checkpoint statement. You can specify a duration which says, I want this checkpoint to be done very quickly or uh, not so fast. 
it's not maybe not as important as something else that might happen there. So, do you know if uh, things like detach, for example, force a checkpoint before the detach? Because um, I see often people in scripts where they do a, a checkpoint before they execute an uh, SP detach DB. I I believe that a, a detach will. Uh, quiesce the database. Hmm. So if you were to look at the status, you could probably see that the database was what we call cleanly shut down. Yes. So that means that there weren't any dirty pages. The stuff that's up there, in the stuff in the log, we could almost get along without because hmm. uh, we made sure that the dirty pages were written to the data. Yeah. And there's really nothing that needs to be recovered. Um, the, the attach single file DB only works with databases that were cleanly recovered. Yeah. Uh, it was cleanly recovered. It knows and it doesn't it builds have a, a new log file. And it doesn't yeah. have to look for a log because it's got everything that it needed. And I've often seen people say the, the easiest way to uh, shrink a log file uh, on databases like that is to detach it cleanly and then reattach just the single file. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, It quickly removes the log files. So we actually have um, create database for attach rebuild log as a, a new DDL. Yes, new DDL, yes. And so if you cleanly shut something down, then it can be an option. Mm. But one of the problems is that people actually delete the log, yes. and then they do this. Yes. And uh, then in they the find out. I see that all the time. People yes. saying, I mean, they've just copied the MDF file, and uh, then they're basically saying, how do I use single file attached DB? Yeah, yeah. attached single file DB, and yeah. yeah. And so they sorry. don't have a, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it comes out as a sorry. There's nothing that we can do. You had stuff in your log that you needed. Mm. Maybe you should have renamed the log, and that old log file, and then maybe tried it, but <laughs> make sure you're covered. Don't delete that old log yeah. without coming forward and... Otherwise, you might get a message that says, "Sorry, I can't recover. I need that mm. log." And you I often it. often see it just with uh, operating system guys that have just backed up what they think is the database file, and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the log has not come yeah. as well. I always say that you know education is one of the key points for high availability. If you want <laughs> your data to be around, you might want to understand how it works, and <laughs> and of course, then you get maybe the system guys who don't quite have the respect for our mm. data that we wish they did sometimes. In your talk, you also had row-level versioning. Uh, that sounds, in general, like one that's not quite transparent. So. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so row-level versioning comes in two flavors. One of them is the snapshot isolation, where you actually have to change your application to use this. And then there's the read-committed read snapshot isolation. And you don't have to change your application at all for that. It just stays probably at the default of read-committed as an isolation level. But underneath the covers within the within the database, we'll use uh, the row-level versioning, um, and so you'll see the values as they were as the t as of the time you began your statement, mm. and that's quite a difference from snapshot isolation. Because snapshot isolation, you'll see the values that were committed as of the time you began your trans the transaction. Transaction, yes. Okay. And so, if inside a transaction you read the same data over and over again, you're going to see exactly the same stuff because mm -hmm. that's what was committed when you began your transaction. Mm -hmm. But with uh, read committed snapshot is isolation, if you read the same thing a couple of times, you might see it a little different because mm -hmm. it'll be at the time you began your statement. But one of the nice things about snapshot isolation or row level versioning or this read committed snapshot isolation is you see the value that was committed. Maybe things have changed a little bit since you began your statement or began your transaction, 
rather than pausing and waiting and being blocked by somebody who's updating things, you'll get to see the value that was committed. Hmm. It also gives you a nice time consistent view of all the data. So you see all the data as it was at a at a specific time rather than maybe seeing some values that have changed subsequently or reading old values at the beginning of a table scan and new values at the end of a table scan or something like that. And we already mentioned the uh, triggers are now using the row versioning internally instead. Right. So uh, it often used to be described to me that uh, the inserted and deleted tables before were almost like a view over the transaction log itself where it used to have to recover the the values from there, but now with uh, locally in the row version table, it seems like it's a lot quicker option. So. It's always interesting. You ask people, where is the inserted and deleted tables? And the, most people will say they're in TempDB, mm. and that's absolutely wrong. They <laughs> yeah. will always have been in the log, so they're actually just a logical interpretation of what's in the log. Yeah. Now... It maybe is the right answer. <laughs> That's right. They really a, are. There. We are using row-level versioning, and those versions are out there in the log. Now, getting towards the end of these, but uh, clustered index rebuilds. Yeah, so um, as you probably know, if I have a clustered index, the clustered index key is actually part of my non-clustered index rows. Mm -hmm. Those are the row locators. That's how I find a row. I might look something up, find it in the non-clustered index, but to get to the rest of the columns that I need, I need to go to the table. Yep. Well, I use that, that clustered index key to uh, get to the row in the table. If I rebuild my clustered index, that may well change some of my row locator, especially if I had a non-unique clustered index because I have a uniqueifier as part of my Added my to row the duplicate values. Yeah. yeah. And so if I do a rebuild of my clustered index, it might move some rows around, it might change my my uniqueifier, so that means that all my non-clustered indexes aren't any good anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, what we've done is we've tried to preserve those uniqueifiers, and so in more cases now your non-clustered index will still be good. Mm -hmm. um, and so we don't have to rebuild it. So whatever you do, do not go out there and drop your non-clustered indexes just before you rebuild your clustered index, only to go in and rebuild your non-clustered index. Because if it <laughs> needs to be done, we'll do it ourselves. You know, if you even in the past, if you rebuilt your clustered index and non-clustered indexes weren't any good anymore, we would rebuild them for you. So mm -hmm. I've actually seen some people who do drop them first, or they go through and they rebuild them afterwards not realizing they just got rebuilt automatically for us. Mm -hmm. A few other uh, handful of general things, an uh, interesting change to the uh, server and that the SQL OS now in yeah. place. So the SQL OS, um, some people think of it as a separate entity, but it's really a, a, bun a bunch of functions that the rest of the SQL server calls. It's just a, a consolidation, a centralization of uh, some of the, the mechanisms that allocating memory or starting threads or any of that type of thing. Uh, does it tend to abstract away the underlying operating system? It, it does to some degree. Mm -hmm. Rather than having different parts of the storage engine call the operating system or the relational engine call the operating system to allocate memory, it just uses this this central part uh, called the, the SQL OS. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not a separate entity. It's just an abstraction mm -hmm. layer, really. I just wondered, uh, is there a... Uh, 
often when you add an abstraction layer, it's to be able to replace the underlying layer. I just wondered, is there any intention to uh, move towards a different underlying operating system or support the product on other underlying operating systems at all? Uh, no. Um, we're still Windows only. The, mm-hmm. the, big, the big benefit here is rather than having everybody buy for the the memory themselves. If we put this through a central place, then it can be managed, and it can, uh, you know, we can work with our mm-hmm. our being a good citizen as far as memory usage and allocating memory and releasing memory, things like that. So, mm-hmm. so it's more of a, a management thing um, yeah. than a uh, than a portability layer or anything like that. Yeah. In terms of replication, I must admit it seems a lot better supported in this version of the product. Yeah, there's uh, there's quite a few changes with replication. I think one of the there's there's really really two cool ones that I I think are are there. One of them is the peer-to-peer replication that gives mm-hmm. us a capability of of getting improved availability, a good scale out, and everything. But another one is the fact that if you uh, alter a table, add a column. Rather than having to use replication stored procedures in order to uh, to do the alter <laughs> SP for you, add column and yeah. all these things, yes. So rather than going through some back door uh, or or some some replication stored procedure that will then go off and do the alter for you, now you just do the alter and the DDL triggers underneath um, will capture the alter and send it off to the subscribers and do it's all wonderful. the right thing there. So you don't have to. I always hate it when we add some fe- when there is some feature that we then have to do the common maintenance in a different way. You know? yeah. Oh, in, I have in to fact, remember that's exactly it. Or it. It's one of the things I, I quite love about mirroring, for example, is that it's very, very transparent to the developers and the people using the system that that, that this is happening. Right. Where uh, replication, it's always been. Uh, Far from transparent to the, the developers that yeah that, that are tables that are replicated. And we have them with database mirroring too. For example, if you're using three-part names within a database, mm. um, that database might fail over to uh, the mirror when the other database that was co-located it's not there anymore. So, <laughs> so there are some things to be aware of there. Indeed, a, f- a few transparent things with connectivity. Right. So. Um, with connectivity now, there's uh, some stuff with security. Uh, in the past, if you didn't have a, uh, a certificate on a, on a machine, then, uh, then we wouldn't actually do encryption. Now what we'll do is we'll do a self-signed SSL cer- uh, certificate and everything else in order to be able to do encryption. So, uh, so that's great. Um, we'll always encrypt the, the login packet now. So mm-hmm. even with the SQL Server authentication, where you supply a password when you connect, um, you don't have to worry about that being intercepted and being um, readable. Mm. We also have these new things called endpoints within SQL Server. So SQL Server has always just sort of listened on things, and there was no formal way to say, I want it to, or I don't want it to, or what is this thing mm-hmm. anyway? Yeah. And so now we've uh, given them a name. You can create these endpoints. You can say that um, only... You know, only certain people can use this endpoint. It can only be used for database mirroring. It can only be used for this certain type of uh, protocol. Even for TCP endpoints, there seems to be a lot more flexibility now in in, uh, how they can be configured. And I noticed also when you're making a connection, you can now force a specific protocol um, by putting that in the connection string as well, which is kind of nice. So it's really cool because now you can say that I want to... Uh, in the past, it would just find one of the protocols that you'd had um, set up from that client and use one of those. And now you can say, I want to connect over TCP or mm. name pipes or whatever. Yeah. 
yeah, rather than just a preference. And I suppose the last one uh, is really the dedicated admin connection. That's a, a nice new addition. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I think almost everybody's going to turn this one on. It's off by default, as is a lot of the new features, but you can use the Surface Area Configuration Manager to turn on the dedicated admin. And what the dedicated admin connection allows you to do is get into the server even when the server appears to be completely pegged and other connections can't get in. What we do is we allocate a little bit of space and a little bit of time so that uh, you can connect. You typically do it with a dash A option in SQL command or some other connection string. And if you're admin, you come through here and... Uh, you can do a subset of the operations that an admin can do, including looking at the DMVs to find out what's going on and then maybe to kill that runaway process. Mm. So you don't have to restart the server and kill everybody in order to, to kill that one runaway process. And uh, the very last one that I, I really loved on your overheads, you mentioned the general network error uh, oh, disappearing. Yeah. I don't know, general network error. I think that was a very useful information. You know, some, <laughs> just some general network error. Actually, the, I mentioned uh, in a session I had this morning the uh, the one that used to really throw me with that. I had one day, I, I sat there uh, when I was starting to work with ADO.net and I just could not get to the bottom of a a general network error and uh, so many things used to return that error and uh, the one that had me thrown uh, back in um, ADO.NET version 1 was that if you set the command timeout to zero it was meant to mean unlimited but it actually meant zero <laughs> and, uh, and it took me ages to realise sometimes a command would get executed sometimes it would not and what would be thrown would be general network error and it took me so long to get to the bottom of the fact that that's what it actually was that uh, was causing it. So I will I will not be sad to, to see uh, general network error disappearing out of the product. So. You know, we've got various errors that we always try to improve, but we we have to. It's another fine line sometimes when you're really concerned about security. Mm. Sometimes you're giving the wrong person. The, the reason information. That, yeah, yeah, it's information disclosure of a sort. <laughs> yes. um, you, you tell them, okay, well, you can connect to this database using this instead. You know, it's <laughs> like uh, they weren't even supposed to know that a certain database existed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That goes back to some of the stuff with our sysobjects table. You know, in mm -hmm. SQL Server 2005, you can only see the objects you have some permission to. In the past, yeah. it could let you know that there was all this other thing going on. That's right. Even though you can't access existed, yeah. yeah. Even though you can't access it, just the knowledge that it exists is, right. is more knowledge than you should have. have a yeah. table called Merger with XYZ <laughs> Company. And, uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. indeed. Well, listen, thanks so very much, Don. So what else have you got coming up? Or any, where can people see you? Or are you back home for a while? Or Well, I, um, I'll i be in Melbourne the next couple of days. Wow, uh, okay. And not then, home yet. Yeah, not home. And then I'm off to Kuala Lumpur for uh, TechEd there. So the TechEd SEA, Southeast Asia. Um, and then I'll be back in the States around the 9th of September or something. Outstanding. And, uh, so no, people in KL should come and see your sessions. Uh, yeah. I did notice on the uh, on the reviews today that you had some of the highest rated sessions at TechEd. Yeah, surprised at that, time, that so it was <laughs> wonderful, wonderful to see. So yeah, people yeah. that uh, get along to KL should get along and see you. And if you're coming to Barcelona for TechEd Europe, I'll be there as well as for the IT Forum, which is the second week of uh, TechEd there. So great. Well, thank you again. Yeah, it's my uh, pleasure. Great to have you on the show. Well, thanks, thanks Greg. Too.